So welcome to the Perioperative Medicine podcast. I'm Marissa Ferguson, Staff Specialist in Aesthetics at the Alfred. And I'm very lucky to be joined today by Romani Menasinghe, who's Professor of Perioperative Medicine at UCL, who's visiting all the way from London. And today we're going to talk about high-risk clinics. Ramani currently runs a high-risk clinic through her um, perioperative work at UCL. So firstly, what prompted you to set up a high-risk clinic? Oh, so I think it was set up for me, really. <laughs> so um, we, um, our preoperative assessment service at UCH uh, is nurse-led, um, but we have a consultant anaesthetist um, in the clinic every day as well. Um, and um, so when patients come to uh, be listed for surgery, um, they first see the nurse, they go through a screening questionnaire with the nurse and then the nurse can refer on to see me or one of my consultant colleagues if they're worried about anything or on the basis of any results that come through. And um, uh, increasingly as our caseload uh, becomes more complicated, um, we get a better understanding of what we want to achieve in terms of shared decisions with patients. Um, I'm being asked to see patients who um, there may be some uncertainty about whether surgery is the right option for them or not. And how exactly are patients referred to you? Are there specific criteria or is it more based on a, a gut feel that oh, this patient doesn't look very well or they've got a lot of comorbidities or perhaps this surgery in this patient is, it seems like a bit of a risky undershoot? Sure. Um, so the way that it runs at the moment, there are two reasons why I might um, see a patient. The first is I may just look at their notes on the basis of um, some abnormal test results. Um, but if I'm asked to see a patient face-to-face, -face, at the moment, um, it's based on either um, the surgeon uh, specifically asking for um, an anaesthetist uh, input, um, uh, some uh, particular types of surgery, um, we would routinely see the patients. So, for example, for patients having esophagectomies. Um, uh, but more often than not, it's on the basis of the nurse being, uh, the preoperative assessment nurse that's seen the patient being concerned about something. And at the moment, that's largely based on um, hunch, on subjective um, uh, assessment, uh, based on based on the overall evaluation. But um, I hope that over time we're going to move towards um, retaining that, because I think that's really important, but also having a system where um, if a patient has a threshold risk based on, for example, um, an objective risk scoring tool like the SORT or on the uh, Duke Activity Status Index, for example, that we might um, then uh, at least be asked to consider seeing the patient. Um, so review the notes first, see what their comorbidities are and then, and then invite them in for a chat. And at what stage in the surgical planning journey are you seeing these patients? I think there's there's often a, a bit of momentum that gets built up whereby patients are referred often by their primary care physician to a surgeon for an operation, they get consented and then sometime down the track, often sort of in the days to perhaps a week or two before a major operation, you then meet the patient. And particularly in a patient where you've got concerns that perhaps surgery, this surgery or any surgery is not the right thing, um, that can be a challenging yeah. thing to deal with. Um, yeah, yeah, how absolutely. How do you approach that? Well, so um, at what point do we see them in general? 
uh, too late in the pathway. Um, and I think it's really important to be honest about this. Our system isn't perfect and we're working towards perfection, but we're a little way off it at the moment. Um, really, it would be better if um, we could pick up um, signals um, about patients who are likely to flag as being high risk as early as possible in the pathway. So when the GP refers to the hospital because the patient's got knee pain or they come out of a screening program um, you know, with an aneurysm or PR bleeding or any number of other things that are likely to end up with a consideration of an operation, um, it's right at that early point of either referral or pick up on screening that we can identify that they're diabetic that they have some comorbidity issues, they've got some lifestyle issues that could be modified, um, and start that process of um, modification early on. As it turns out um, in our system, um, at the moment we are uh, in the position of seeing patients really quite close to the time of surgery. So for some of our major operations, um, anaesthetists are part of the MDT decision-making process, and that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. So um, we have that very well established in, for example, upper GI surgery, cancer surgery, um, and we have that very well established in bariatric surgery um, because it's mandatory in the UK if a patient's having bariatric surgery that they need a psychological assessment, anaesthetic assessment, all those sorts of things. Um, but it doesn't work um, in, so well in some of our other specialties. So... Um, Unfortunately, we are still seeing patients where there's some time pressure to get on with the operation because we have targets within the NHS to prevent patients from being um, delayed too long between referral and treatment. Um, and uh, as you've mentioned, the patient's psychologically built up towards the idea of having a procedure and then suddenly, two or three weeks before it's due to take place, why appear and start to put the brakes on things. And that, that's something that we, we could do better at. And in terms of your assessment in the high-risk clinic, what, what are your main aims? Is the aim of the clinic to determine whether a patient is in fact too high-risk to proceed or to assess things that we can perhaps optimise to reduce their risk or um, something else entirely? Um, so I think it's a bit of both of those things and, and some other stuff as well. Um, uh, all of this depends on the context um, and in the end uh, the patient needs to uh, have an idea of what is ahead of them uh, and what the risks and benefits to them are of going ahead or not going ahead. The surgeon needs to be clear about what the risks are um, from uh, to the patient and for themselves as well because the surgeon will have a view on whether he or she wants to undertake surgery in a very high risk patient. Uh, and the anaesthetist and the rest of the perioperative care team need to be prepared for how to best look after the patient. So um, uh, what I try to do uh, in the clinic when I see a high-risk patient or someone who, who appears to be high-risk is um, uh, the first thing I try to do is obviously find out as much as I can about them. Um, and then I try to find out what they know about what it is that's going to happen to them uh, or what is planned. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting to me is um, how patients can sometimes get to that stage where they're right up uh, against the sort of uh, window of having the operation um, and really not have an understanding of um, how their general health is likely to affect the outcome. Um, 
And to some extent, it's kind of, you know, why would a patient who's coming for a knee replacement think that their heart is actually relevant or their lungs are actually relevant or the fact that they smoke is relevant because it's a knee operation? Um, and clearly, um, in patients who are more socially deprived, uh, who have lower levels of health literacy, uh, these patients are predestined to have worse outcomes. Um, and they're the ones in whom potentially the greatest opportunities are there to kind of modify those adverse outcomes. So, um, so yeah, um, it's a, it's the idea of uh, the way that I uh, try to engage with patients in the clinic is I'm trying to learn as much as I possibly can about them uh, and then have a chat with them to make sure that they understand uh, what the risks are to them, uh, what the alternatives are, because that's often not been discussed, um, and also to make it clear that the outcome is not a binary thing. It's not, I'm either going to have a successful operation or I'm not, or I'm going to die or I'm going to live. But understanding that um, sometimes, particularly in operations where um, the aim is to improve quality of life rather than um, lengthen life, um, that actually that improvement in quality of life is not necessarily guaranteed. And so just sort of explore different options with them. And how is your clinic structured in terms of other disciplines involved in the clinic? Uh, so at the moment it's entirely anaesthetic led. But um, I rely on um, good collaboration with my colleagues um, in other specialties to um, to get their expertise where required. So um, uh, I will often call on, for example, the cardiologist's expertise if there's a specific thing. Um, so sometimes, you know, patients turn up who um, are particularly um, surprisingly abnormal ECGs, for example, who may be asymptomatic, but you think well, that, that really doesn't look good in terms of heart block risk and so on. So I get their sort of specialist input to that sort of thing. Um, we uh, obviously interact with other uh, healthcare professionals that the, the long term um, that manage long term conditions like the diabetologists and so on and so forth as well. But what we try to do in this clinic is provide the sort of holistic physicianly uh, approach. So um, I will uh, usually do an objective risk assessment using uh, the sort. Um, I will usually do some sort of assessment of functional capacity, usually using the GEEK index. Um, and in older patients, I will usually um, use the Edmonton Frail Scale to look at um, their frailty. In truth, I'm not sure how all of these things interact with each other. Um, well, one thing that the frailty index gives me over other things is an understanding of the specific sort of issues around cognition, for example, that patients might have. Um, and I'm often uh, slightly surprised at what I see. So it is, I find an investigation worth doing and it doesn't take very long. That's great. And then lastly, in patients who you've got concerns that perhaps surgery may not be the, in their best interests, how do you approach a, a sort of shared decision-making pathway moving forwards to, to decide in a collaborative way whether in fact they should or shouldn't go ahead with surgery or perhaps if there's a less invasive option? So, um, I don't see it as my role to turn a patient down for surgery. I think that's the first principle. Um, uh, I see it in my role to help patients understand what the risks are so that they can make an informed decision about whether the 
risks as I see them are worth taking. Um, so uh, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, uh, I saw a, a gentleman who needed a um, enterocutaneous fistula repair. So he um, had had a mesh hernia repair many years ago and the mesh had worked its way out into the open world and um, poor chap had um, uh, bowel contents just pouring out into the open world and um, it, his life was intolerable. Um, he had really poor kind of stoma. He didn't have a stoma, but he had sort of poor management of the wound and he wanted to come for an ECF repair. And um, the gentleman had terrible, terrible cardiac function, terrible, um, an ejection fraction of 10% already had a defib, um, uh, um, a defib and an, uh, a dual chamber pacemaker in and so on, resynchronization therapy, all that stuff. So, um, and uh, the patient had been quoted a very high risk of mortality by the surgeon. And his view was, my life is intolerable, so I don't care if I die, I can't go on like this. Um, now, this patient hadn't had it explained to him yet that um, actually with that level of poor cardiorespiratory reserve, the chances of the operation succeeding were zero in my opinion because he just wouldn't have the cardiac output um, to deliver sufficient oxygen for his wound to heal. Mm -hmm. um, and the chances were that he would go through a major operation and then spend several weeks potentially um, on an intensive care unit in a bad way. Um, and there's a chance that if he did survive all of that, that his quality of life would be even worse than it was on the day that I saw him. Now, what was interesting was that um, obviously he'd not had that explained to him in that way. But the other thing is that he hadn't had some of the more straightforward things that might have helped him to make his life better um, offered to him. So, for example, he hadn't really seen a stoma nurse for some time. And so actually the management of the wound was really being left to him to sort out and actually there were opportunities to make that better that he hadn't realised. Um, he wasn't very well supported in terms of social services and so on and there was obviously room for improvement there and, and a whole bunch of other things and so when presented with the options in a slightly different way um, he was keen to pursue the idea of um, non-surgical uh, options um, and to see if his quality of life could be improved. So, um, and where we left it was that um, he would go away and work with his GP and so on to try and get all of that sorted out. But if in six months' time or three months' time they'd explored all of that stuff and life was still intolerable for him, then we'd meet again and have another chat about it. And at that point, if everything, all other options had been exhausted and the surgeon was prepared to go ahead and he felt it was the right thing, then I'm not going to stop him. But um, uh, for me, it's about um, making sure that uh, all the other avenues have been explored uh, so that surgery really is seen as, in that case, uh, the last resort. And then at that point, you put in place um, the advanced care planning um, that is necessary for a patient who's likely to have a high chance of some bad stuff happening so that if he's incapacitated, we can manage him um, in the way that he would want to be managed rather than us guessing. That sounds like a really challenging case and really um, good case to illustrate all the complexities of these patients that we do see. So 
Thank you very much for your time today. That was really some fascinating insights into the practicalities of dealing with these, these difficult issues. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.